Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll be reading all the verses. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Ilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Odiah, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Ainan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the prophet remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. 
and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So far the reading. As Andrew mentioned earlier, today's sermon is entitled An Attitude of Worship. Picture it, Judah about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. The people of Judah have finally run out of chances to be obedient to God. Time and again the Lord called them to repentance, but time and again they remained deaf to his call. He sent one prophet after the other to warn them, but they were all ignored. This was the nation that the Lord had set aside for himself, but to put it in human terms, his patience finally ran out. Because of their continued lack of repentance, God sent the feared and much-hated Babylonians to punish his people. Jerusalem was torn apart, destroyed and burnt. The temple was razed to the ground and a large part of the population was exiled to Babylon. But God didn't forget them. Some 70 years after the exile, he worked in the heart of the Babylonian ruler to allow many of the exiles to return. Over the next decades, this remnant of God's people rebuilt the temple, but the city was still mostly in ruins. Even in the time that our passage is set, about 150 years after the exile, the city remained devastated. The great wall surrounding the city was in pieces, and the gates were open. Any opposition or invaders could just easily walk into the city. It's against this background that a messenger is sent to Nehemiah. He was an important official in the government of Artaxerxes, who was the son of Ahasuerus, of whom we read in the book of Esther. And when this important fellow hears the news about Jerusalem and its people, he's shocked and he's shattered. He turns to God in prayer, confessing the sins of his people, and he begs God for forgiveness. And God responds. He works in the heart of the ruler who sends Nehemiah to Judah as a governor and under his leadership a process of reform starts. The Almighty God, known for his faithfulness, promised his people forgiveness if they repented and his covenant promises still held true despite their unfaithfulness. Now, through the work led by Nehemiah, the nation itself would be rebuilt. It would start with the physical rebuilding of the wall, but at the end of the day it wasn't about that. It wasn't about the building of an edifice, but about the edification of the builders. It wasn't about the building of an edifice, but about the edification of the builders. Remember that the remnant of Judah had been back for almost a hundred years, yet the wall hadn't been rebuilt. We didn't read chapter 7 this morning, but there we told that With God's guidance, Nehemiah led the people in completing the rebuilding in just 52 days. I think we can safely call that a miracle. Can you imagine what a huge impact this must have made on them? Their city, no, God's city, was safe again. And this is where we step into the picture this morning, so to speak. It's the day after the wall's been completed. The material need of God's people has been met, Now it was a time for their spiritual rebuilding. So can we learn anything from this piece of history? 
Well, friends, the answer is a resounding yes. It's a lesson Christians across the world, and yes, even here in Tivoli, need to hear and learn today. For you see, at its very core, this passage tells us what biblical worship is all about. It's about worship that comes from repentance. It's about worship that is reflected in our attitude to God's holy word and to living lives submitted to God. As we look at how this played out in the lives of the remnant of God's people, we'll see that Nehemiah 8 tells us about gathering together as God's people, affirming the authority of God's word, and surrendering oneself to the God of grace. Gathering together as God's people, affirming the authority of God's word, and surrendering oneself to the God of grace. Let's first look at gathering together as God's people. So the wall's been completed, the gates installed and secured with guards. Jerusalem was again a place of of relative safety, a walled fortress. And as verse 1 tells us, the people were assembled, waiting for Ezra to read from the law of Moses. Now please note that Ezra didn't just read the Ten Commandments or a summary of the law as we did this morning. No, this was a full-on reading of the law according to the books of Moses. Now folks, if you think our church services are too long, just look at what verse 3 says. Ezra read from early morning till midday, and the people remained attentive. We're not told that they fell asleep or took a tea break. There wasn't an intermission. These folks were gathered as the people of God, listening to the word of God, and they soaked it all up. Yes, they were gathered together as God's people to worship God in unity. The wall was finished, it was rebuilt, and God's people were assembled to be built up too. So does this apply to us today in any way? After all, we've not spent the past 52 days building a wall, have we? Is what God's people did in this passage applicable to us today? Should we be gathering together for worship? Can't we just listen in on the internet or on the radio? Can't we just download the sermon sometime during the week and listen to it then when we've got more time or when it's more convenient? Do we willingly and enthusiastically gather together as God's people to sit under His Word to praise and glorify Him? Do we come to church only when the previous night hasn't been too heavy? Do we come to church only when we are really in need of something and we think somehow we can just come and top up on God's grace and then chew off again? People of God, over the past couple of years we've learnt about a, a number of new illnesses such as COVID and now monkeypox. But there's another disease that's much more dangerous, much more dangerous to professing Christians, and its fancy Latin name is Morbus Sundiatus, or in plain English, Sunday sickness. The symptoms vary widely, but they never seem to be accompanied by a a loss of appetite. It sets in about, about an hour before church time starts, and then, just as mysteriously, disappears about an hour after that, just in time for a large meal or to go on a ride on your bike or to attend a footy match. And remarkably, the symptoms don't return until the following Sunday. And just like COVID with all its variants, 
This sickness also manifests in other ways, such as seeing corporate worship as a chore, something you just have to do and then, oh well, then it's over for another week. Or the well-known variant where biblical requirements to meet together is rationalized away with ideas like, I can worship God just as well at home. I don't have to go to church to do that. Or, I can worship Him just as well when I go fishing or play rugby or go play footy on a Sunday morning. Friends, just as the dreaded Babylonians destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, this dreaded Sunday sickness erodes and destroys our spiritual walls. You see, here, here in the presence of God, we are together as God's people in corporate worship. Here, together as the body of Christ, being stirred up to love, we are built up spiritually. Beloved, we are not meant to be lone ranger Christians. You and I were created to be in community with God as well as with each other. The New Testament talks about us as the body of believers, the body of Christ. And as members of the body of Christ, we are to worship together and praise together and pray together and encourage each other. And if we neglect meeting together, if we stay away from corporate worship, our hearts become colder and colder and colder. We lose that intensity. We lose that fire in the belly. We lose community with God and with each other. And our spiritual walls erode and fall down. We're not meant to be lone ranger Christians, friends. We're meant to be in fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. As the people of Jerusalem were drawn together in building the wall, they came to understand the importance of what God was doing. They came to realize the magnitude of what was happening. It wasn't about the rebuilding of the wall, but about what it signified, the rebuilding of the people of God. They themselves were being built up. I pray that we all come to realize and understand that worshipping together, praising our God together, sitting under His Word together, builds up our spiritual walls. It fills up the holes in the wall. It closes the gates against enemies. It fortifies our souls against the attacks of our age-old foe, Satan himself. Beloved in Christ, let's not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but let us come together to worship our God. That's the first thing about biblical worship, meeting together. Secondly, biblical worship is about affirming the authority of God's word. Many people today view the Bible as just fiction. And that's not surprising, given that the majority of people today do not believe in God. But sadly, even some Christians no longer accept the Bible as the infallible and unchanging Word of God. Some view it just as a guide. You know, something that only gives you a suggestion of what you might want to do. And this is especially so in our post-postmodern society. People view the truths of the Bible as, well, as a relative. It may be true for you, but not for me. Other so-called Christians have what I call a salad bar approach. Something like when you go to Sizzler's and you stand in front of their extensive salad bar and you, you just pick and choose what you like. 
If you don't like the letters or the beetroot, that's fine, just skip them. And some people follow the same approach with the Bible. Oh, they say that part about sex being reserved for one man and one woman within the bond of marriage? That's just old-fashioned. It doesn't fit with our culture or with my wishes, so I'm not going to believe that. Or, that part about tithing, surely, surely that doesn't still apply today? Or, come on, mate, you really can't expect me to believe that bit about the virgin birth, can you? People pick and choose what they want to believe, because it's all about them, about their wants, it's about their preferences. Instead of affirming the authority of God's word, instead of letting God's word sit in judgment over them, they just sit in judgment over it. But look at what our passage tells us about when Ezra opened the book. All the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Spirit of God was taking the Word of God and creating a community of God. That was what was happening here. The assembled people were hungry for the Word of God and they were awestruck by it. They showed a desire to honour God and worship Him. Their immersion in the Word began in prayer and led to worship. To use my previous analogy, they didn't take a salad bar approach to it. They didn't pick and choose which passages they liked and didn't like. They took it as the word of God and they were awestruck by it. Beloved in Christ, can I urge you to ask yourselves these questions? Are you still captivated by this God-breathed word? Do you have a hunger for God's awesome word? Does this word still drive you to your knees in prayer? Do you view it as the complete, authoritative and infallible word of God? Or have you become a bit like many in the world, happy to water down those difficult parts to make them more acceptable? Perhaps like some, you only want to accept the parts about love and grace and justification, but not the ones about submitting on surrendering all to God. All of Scripture, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and suitable for preaching, teaching, rebuking, correcting and for training us in righteousness. All of it. It doesn't need editing. It doesn't need to be modified to suit the latest fads. It doesn't need to be watered down to make it more acceptable. We either accept the Bible as a whole or we don't accept it at all. We either accept it as the complete truth, or we make it into a lie. It either has authority over every aspect of our lives, or it has no authority. It's an all-or-nothing thing. There's no 50-50 here. You either affirm the authority of the Word of God over all of your life, or you don't. And this choice has consequences life or death consequences. We either believe like children and enter the kingdom of God, or we don't, and we die. That's the bottom line. We either believe like children and enter the kingdom of God, or we don't, and we die.
Dearest brothers and sisters, I pray, I I sincerely pray that you have accepted and that you keep on affirming the authority of the Word of God in all aspects of your life. The first part of our passage teaches us that biblical worship is about gathering together for worship and secondly about affirming the authority of God's Word. The last ten verses show us how that plays out in the lives of the people of Jerusalem. We see how the Levites taught the people, helping them to understand God's word. We learn that when the people understood what they were being taught, they wept as they were convicted of their sin. They mourned that they and their forefathers were so sinful. But we also see how they learned that the Lord was their strength and that they should rejoice and celebrate. You see, these people felt the joy of being identified with the community of God's people. They had great cause for rejoicing and and celebration, for they had a faithful and merciful God, who despite their sin, and despite the sin of their forefathers, was gracious to them. And as that realization set in, As they came back the second day to study the words of the law further, they started to experience the joy to be found in the Lord. For seven days they celebrated Sukkoth, the festival of booths. Not the festival of booze, as some have said, the festival of booths, for the first time since the time of Joshua. Throughout those days, the book of the law of God was read, which would have included the well-known words of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And rejoicing, they worshipped God by putting these words into action. They consecrated themselves to God. And friends, that's the deeper meaning of this imagery of the Feast of Booths. The exchanging of the comforts of home for an existence of dependence shows us how we ought to surrender our lives, ourselves, to God. Our worship of God is expressed in surrendering all aspects of our lives to Him, trusting in Him, being dependent on Him, consecrating ourselves to Him, and loving Him with all our heart and soul and might. Surrendering ourselves to God means surrendering our lives to Him, warts and all, Genuine surrender says, Father, I'm struggling with this illness or this problem. If it is to your glory to resolve this, please do so. But if it fulfills your purpose not to do so, then Lord, that is what I want too. It means aligning what you want with what God wants and being willing then to follow him as he guides you in your life. It means relying on God to work things out instead of trying to manipulate others or force your agenda or try to control the situation. And hearts surrendered to God have an effect in our relationships too. It's that love thing that we find in in 1 Corinthians 13. A heart surrendered isn't self-serving. It doesn't try to push others out. It isn't demanding. It doesn't seek its own way. Brothers and sisters, you and I know that we struggle to do this fully or properly. It's a struggle because we have such a self-centered nature. But that doesn't mean we should give up. After all, we have help. The greatest help and helper 
ever the Holy Spirit. Because of our sinful nature, yes, it will be difficult. But the more we entrust things to God in prayer, instead of relying on ourselves, the closer we are drawn to God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we submit to Christ, the more we will want to submit to Him, and the more room there is for the filling of the Holy Spirit. The more we surrender to God, the more our old nature wastes away to be replaced by one that more and more resembles Christ. And again, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we surrender to God, the more we worship Him, and the more we worship Him, the more we will rely on Him. And as Paul assures the Philippians, we can do this through Him who gives us strength. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me conclude with the following. When we come together as a community of believers, when we pray together, when we praise our God together, when we raise our voices up in song, when we submit to Him in love, that is music to God's ears. And it's not just any old music. It's a whole symphony. Worshipping God as a community enables us to encourage each other and to build each other up. Sitting together under the teaching of the Word of God builds up the walls of our faith. It helps to close off the gaps and it shuts the gates in the wall so Satan cannot just walk in and invade our spiritual lives. Sitting under the teaching of God's Word and unashamedly and unreservedly submitting to His Word draws us closer to God. When we hear the word of God, when we obey it, the joy of the Lord will be our strength, regardless of our circumstances. Worshipping this way, willingly submitting ourselves to God's word, and living out that word by surrendering all aspects of our lives to God's will, is the biblical way of showing and living out our love for and our gratitude to our Almighty God. I say this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we could gather again this morning, that we could join together to worship you and to listen to your word. Thank you that when we meet together, we can encourage each other, that we can build each other up. Thank you that through listening to your word, we can be built up, that our faith can be strengthened, and that more and more we can be drawn closer to you. Thank you that we can worship you also in song, that we can raise our voices to you not only in prayer, but also in song. Thank you that we can glorify you and, and magnify your name also in this way. Help us now, Lord, to fully surrender our lives to you. Not just part of it, Lord, but all of it. Help us through your Holy Spirit to live out our lives with surrendered hearts so that we can truly reflect your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.